Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. And in this, our fifth season of How to Choose, we're looking at eight attributes of good decision makers. And we're actually just over halfway through the season. Um, So I want to test if we should maybe do a quick recap. What do you reckon? Great idea. All right. So we've talked about four attributes so far, and they are curiosity, purpose or purposefulness, realistic optimism, and knowledge hungry. So Let's imagine how these might be useful in a decision situation. So let's say we have a clear purpose to start off with. And it could be, for example, you want to change in your work situation. You're sick of of your current job and you've decided, I want to become my own boss and start up some kind of business. So that's your purpose. It's kind of the guiding light that will then drive you through your decision-making process. At that point, it's useful to start applying curiosity. So you might think, well, look, what I want to do is start a cafe. But curiosity would make you think a bit more broadly and look around at other options as well. And it might be a case of saying, well, look, I'm not just going to do a really deep dive on how to start a cafe, but I'm going to think laterally. I might even look for some uh, opportunities to shadow someone else who's running a cafe, ask them a lot of questions and just see what they're doing, but also look more broadly at the market. So that's your curiosity that's then helping you with achieving the purpose. And what about the next two tests that we've done? Mm. Well, in this example, realistic optimism is essential. You know, we've talked about how essential optimism is before and, you know, it's necessary particularly for new ventures, but that realism is also essential. You know, you don't want to go in uh, with rose-coloured glasses without realising, you know, that the market is uh, already saturated with cafes and you could sink all your time and passion and, and energy into this just for it to flop. So, you know, you've got to do your due diligence there. And I think that's also quite related to the no- being knowledge-hungry too. Channel Warren Buffett and just be so interested in the world around you. Every person you meet is going to give you more information. So if you're going to start this cafe, you need to be talking to everyone you meet about what they like in cafes, what it's like to run a small business, what different markets are. You know, there are, there are so many opportunities to absorb more information and they'll help you make better decisions about that venture. And I think that's a good segue actually into the next uh, topic that we're going to talk about. A hundred percent. Yeah, sometimes having those uh, conversations with strangers also could be a bit daunting, uh, but we're talking about courage today. It may not always feel like it, but many decisions do really take courage to make. Look, I know we were recently deciding what to order for takeaway, and uh, if anybody knows my family, you'll know those kind of decisions can be excruciating. <laughs> um, and while everyone was dithering, I made the courageous decision that we should have Indian food. <laughs> so bold, Ken. Um, imagine if you had stayed quiet, your poor family would have still been wallowing in a world of regret by having the same old Thai food that they always have. Your courageous choice opened them up to a new frontier. Yeah. And look, I'm not sure that they really fully appreciate how lucky they are. Um, maybe you can <laughs> maybe you can let them know, Tess. Look, maybe it should be a permanent Ken the Dictator choice for takeaways <laughs> from now on. Yeah, that's right. My benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> But to go to a more serious example, imagine you're a neurosurgeon deciding whether to operate or not. And I actually watched a TEDx by a German doctor who has to make these decisions every day. Now, just on a little side note, Ken, apparently only boomers still watch TEDs, but I still watch them. 
you know, they help satiate my curiosity for new information and send me down learning rabbit holes. So I don't know if that makes me, you know, a grandma before my time. Yeah. And look, I've, I feel like it. I've kind of been neglecting the TED Talks. So given where I sit in the demographic, it might be a good time to get back, back <laughs> into them. Um, so in this talk, the doctor reflects on a career of decisions and also a career requiring courage. Uh, and he shares quite a few case studies. And in the first one, he talks about a patient that others aren't willing to operate on. And it's actually the biggest challenge his team has taken on. So it's risky, but also courageous. And there was actually a significant chance that things could go wrong and they could have lost the patient. But happily, it all turned out well. The patient made a full recovery. And he reflects, it was a perfect case. We pushed our boundaries. And I could but- see, Tess, that some some people in a motivational kind of talk would tell that story and that would kind of be the end of it wouldn't it and and the message would be you just have to be awesome be and courageous yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> no it's interesting he was very reflective the whole time it was quite interesting to see that internal thought process being carried out because he's constantly having to wrestle with these decisions and this this risk uh you know is he going to be bold is he going to be courageous but it actually could hurt someone too the next case does not go anywhere near as well Uh, In this one, other doctors were also reluctant to treat them, but he decided to. And a small brain bleed following the surgery left the patient barely able to speak and losing movement in the left side of their body. And as the doctor said, it was a severe complication as a direct result of my decision and my action. And he's really filled with regret for his decision to operate in this case. Uh, And then in the final case, it's an 83-year-old patient with a minor brain aneurysm And the doctor is actually afraid of the treatment risks of operating and instead decides not to operate and will just check up in a year to see how the aneurysm is progressing. You know, he doesn't take that courageous decision. He takes the non-decision, which as our regular listeners know, is still a decision. And sadly, in this example, the aneurysm ruptured before the next checkup. And the doctor reflects, you know, I had the skills to prevent this, but I backed off. Why have I failed? And the man's son actually asked similar questions. Why did he hesitate to take action when he did have that skill set? Yeah, wow. That's some really dramatic examples of very high stakes decision making, isn't it? It's it's so daunting to have to face literal life and death decisions every day. I mean, luckily for most of us, the consequences of our decisions are not quite so stark. But I think it's a really important reminder, you know, that even our smaller decisions do take courage. You know, we're constantly weighing up risks and benefits. Sometimes we choose not to decide as it feels safer. But just like in the doctor's example, sometimes this can actually be disastrous. We don't want to go through life like Cheedy from The Good Place, who was literally killed by his indecision. Poor old Cheedy. He's he's hopeless, (laughs) isn't he? And look, I'm reading an interesting book by Robert Peckham, and it's called Fear, an Alternative History of the World. And the author quotes the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who argued that an individual's capacity to make free choices may induce paralyzing anxiety. And I think even though most of us are not performing brain surgery, it's very relatable. You know, we can be really paralyzed by our choices. But let's define courage just so that we're all on the same page. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens or challenges you. And it's important here to remind ourselves that courage does not equal a lack of fear. Rather, it is a willingness to act in fearful situations. Yes. And in this episode, we are really talking about those hard decisions, not about what takeaway to have for dinner, but those things that are really hard or challenge us. So it might be standing up to the leadership at your work 
who you believe are going down an incorrect or maybe even unjust path. Or maybe it's about having a really tough conversation with a loved one about something that might be damaging them in the long term. Yeah, and while it often might feel like not deciding or postponing the decision is the easiest path to take, it's not always the right one. Hmm. Thankfully, the image of a courageous leader has evolved over the last few decades. And I think we can all imagine, you know, that kind of 80s model of leadership. Uh, You know, they were extroverts, stomping around, making demands, micromanaging, probably shouting at the same time at their team members. The team's job was to execute the leader's vision, no questions asked. Whereas today, a good leader and decision maker's role is more widely recognised as someone who listens actively, keeps an open mind, and can join the dots of all the perspectives in their team to innovate and create. Yeah, that's right. It's a much more collaborative model, isn't it? And look, obviously, there are many leaders who don't demonstrate those characteristics. Um, Not all organisations even have the same idea of what a good leader is. But today, we're looking at the kind of leadership traits that we think will result in really good decisions. Mm. And we'll look specifically at courageous leadership and decision making and some of the things that you can do in teams and organisations, big and small to help make the best decisions. And the first one is the importance of removing ego from the equation. And we've talked about this before. As analysts, um, as Tess and I are, we're trained to seek out feedback and contrary views as this makes our work better. But unfortunately, this isn't the default setting for most of us. It's really easy to avoid input that challenges our beliefs. And we're all susceptible to confirmation bias And that's something we discuss in season three, episode two. It's the tendency to prefer information and see it as more reliable if it aligns with what we already believe. We need to be really wary of this when we're making decisions, particularly as leaders. And you need to ask yourself, are you surrounding yourself with yes people who agree with you and affirm your opinions? Or do you set aside your ego and openly encourage people to provide feedback and criticism? Maybe you're accidentally creating an environment where your team will be very susceptible to groupthink, which is the tendency to conform to what everyone else around us says or thinks. And we covered that in episode nine of season three. But here's something to try. At your next meeting, try speaking last so that you can hear everyone's honest opinions first. Or if you're making a decision about something, you could allow an anonymous vote And those are two ways that you can empower your colleagues to be more courageous. Mm, That's so important, Ken. Uh, And that's really if you're the leader, like if you're the one who is trying to gather that information. Maybe if you're not the leader, you could encourage it and and suggest that your boss implement some of these as, as your new protocol. There's also an example that's been in the news in Australia recently with the findings from the Robo Debt Royal Commission. And to briefly summarize for our non Australian listeners, One of our government departments used decision-making algorithms to identify and collect welfare support overpayments without any human oversight. And $751 million was wrongly recovered from over 380,000 people. And it just caused a huge amount of stress and pain on those affected. It has even been blamed for some suicides, which is a real true tragedy. Our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said it was wrong, it was illegal, It should never have happened, and it should never happen again. So why did it happen, Ken? Do you understand? Look, I've had a bit of a look at the report, and it it is. It's an awful 
story, isn't it? Just terrible. Um, and what I can gather from from my reading of the report, senior leadership seem to have created an environment of fearfulness. Mm. The commission has offered a pretty scathing assessment of this, of the, the senior public servants and their roles in overseeing robo-debt. So few of them had the courage to question their leader, Catherine Campbell, who was the secretary of the department overseeing the program. And the whistleblowers of the scheme were generally much more junior staff in the department, not the leaders who knew all of the details, and actually many of whom were aware of the illegality of the program, but chose to either cover it up or not say anything. Yeah, it's a terrible indictment, really, of of, uh, leadership. So how do you think something like this can be avoided in the future? Mm. While there is personal culpability, and every individual involved who knew that the program was illegal did have a responsibility to provide the frank and fearless advice up the chain, what really created the conditions for this was it seems to be leadership style. Lawyers who worked in the department told the commission that in 2018, they feared giving their boss, Campbell, news that she would not have liked, relating to legal advice about the unlawfulness of the scheme. And quoting the commission, After she came to the department, there came to be a culture, even at the higher levels, of reticence or fear to raise issues. One officer told the commission, colloquially, there was a commentary that no one wanted to give her bad news. Now, listen, we're talking about courage. I I think it's worth pondering for a moment the word discourage. One of the accusations of witnesses who gave evidence to the Royal Commission was that the Deputy Secretary responsible for standing up the scheme discouraged people from giving her information clearly and comprehensively setting out risks and problems, which affected the quality of information and advice provided. When we discourage people from sharing, we are dissuading them from showing courage. We're actually creating an atmosphere where courage is not welcome. And all of this is really the opposite of what we're striving for. We want to encourage other people, empower them to be bold and enable them to make courageous decisions. Now, what else can we do then to enable more courage in decision-making? So the second point, Ken, is one we've talked about earlier this season, but it's so important to actively listen and not just wait until it's your turn to give your two cents. If you're the one making the decision, you should speak less and listen more. And as we talked about in the Knowledge Hungry episode, you need to have an open mind and actually be willing to change your mind from what you're hearing too. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the third way we can encourage courageous decisions is to actively invite our teams to constructively engage in dissent with one another. So not just with you if you're a leader or if you're someone leading a meeting. Dissent is a great way to highlight potential flaws in a plan or a strategy. And when we do this, we can foster an environment where we can fail fast, if you recall that term. So if you remember failing fast is actually best practice. So we want to quickly identify those problems and then move on. Abandon something if it is really a failed plan rather than investing more time and money into a particular project. Another thing you can do is assign a devil's advocate in your meetings. So that's where you have someone who is assigned a role of actively providing a contrary view to the rest of the group. And it doesn't matter if that's their personal opinion or not. It's almost like taking a side as you would in a debate. And another thing, and this one I really like, is actually doing something called a pre-mortem. I'll have a a link in the show notes, but simply put, a pre-mortem 
is the opposite of a postmortem. Rather than waiting for a project to fail or die, you imagine that it has already failed, and then you conduct a review of what went wrong. So using their knowledge and expertise, the team members generate plausible reasons for the project's failure. Those reasons might then be enough to make you decide against pursuing that particular project, which will save you a lot of time and money, potentially. Alternatively, you might still go ahead with the project, but you might implement some additional measures to reduce the likelihood of failure. Either way, you've benefited from the courage of your team who've been willing to face up to the possibility of critical failure and looked closely at the flaws in their plan. So that requires courage, but it's also a great way of creating a culture that is courageous in a team. Mm. And as a team member, it can actually be very courageous decision to be that lone voice speaking out against the group consensus. In Adam Grant's Think Again, he talks about creating a culture of learning and allowing space for those courageous decisions. After some disastrous space launches, which actually killed astronauts, he discusses how NASA changed its culture through a courageous leader who was happy to be the squeaky wheel and made it her business to ask the difficult questions. And in one instance, she was the lone voice which delayed a very expensive space launch. But you need to deliberately create a culture that allows this kind of comfort with dissent. And linked to this, the final thing that courageous leaders do is admit their mistakes. Uh, and this is definitely not easy to do, uh, but they're happy to show vulnerability by admitting when they're wrong. This also demonstrates having a growth mindset, which we've discussed this season already. In order to grow and improve, you need to understand when you get it wrong and work to improve so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think some people are fearful of acknowledging uh, their mistakes because they think it undermines people's confidence in them and, and damages their reputation. Um, but I think it's much more damaging to not acknowledge your mistakes. Everyone else is seeing it um, and you're the one pretending that everything's okay. So creating a culture where everyone, including the leadership, discusses mistakes openly creates psychological safety within an organization. It encourages others to see mistakes as a learning opportunity and not something to be covered up. Mm, that's such a good point, Ken. If if you're the boss or even a, a team leader, you really need to lead by example here because your team members aren't going to feel comfortable admitting their mistakes if you're not willing to do the same yourself. No. So to reiterate, in order to facilitate good decision-making and particularly for leaders, you need to leave your ego at the door speak less and listen more, encourage dissent, and be able to admit when you're wrong. And it's worth noting that none of this is easy, and that's why it takes courage to implement. It's much easier to blindly forge ahead, ignoring advice and assuming you're right, but it probably won't lead to making a good decision at the end of the day. Uh, and unfortunately, though, this is not the norm. You know, research does suggest that individuals who have an inflated sense of self-importance and entitlement are more likely to be selected as leaders and that it's not uncommon for leaders to display arrogance and require admiration from followers. And we know how detrimental this can be to decision-making from some of our examples. So while this means that we often don't get the best people in leadership positions, you know, it doesn't mean they're effective and that these methods actually work. Ken, have you come across any of these kinds of leaders before? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, you'll be unsurprised to hear. I can think of one leader who really did not want to disappoint their boss and so inflicted really unrealistic demands on their staff. And it was really clear to everyone that the welfare and best interests of staff came second 
to delivering the kind of impressive results that would give that leader recognition and open up new opportunities for them. And I was just chatting about this kind of poor leadership with someone I met recently, and he was bemoaning the bad leadership that he'd seen. He described one leader that lacked the courage to deliver a message of bad news to their manager and instead promised that his team of software designers would deliver a new program in a time frame that was actually impossible. So these are big leadership failures, aren't they? Yeah, those are huge. And actually, your example, Ken, reminds me that there's also a cultural factor here. There's great examples in cockpits around the world and how um, pilots and their co-pilots interact and talk to each other. And there's actually been quite a number of crashes, some that actually have killed entire plane loads of people because the co-pilot wasn't willing to be a courageous voice and actually told the pilot when they were doing something wrong, leading to you know tragic loss of life. You know, you can Google this transcripts, uh, cockpit failures, and it's it's quite shocking the the cultural difference as well. That um, some are much more hierarchical and find it much harder harder to have those courageous conversations. So while bad leadership is common, uh, we know that it's not effective. And in fact, high performing employees, teams, and organisations often have leaders who display humility and display a lot of the courageous traits we've just described, including things like acknowledging limitations and weaknesses appreciation of others' strengths and contributions, and an openness to new insights and feedback. And we'll have a link in our show notes to this research. Yeah, humility and courage are so closely tied together because it really takes courage to show humility, especially in cultures that expect strong leaders to be rigid and aloof. Yeah, and if you're in a workplace with an ineffective leader, it is still so important to demonstrate that courage in your decision-making and provide frank and fearless advice when it's necessary. You know, don't Put yourself on the chopping block when it's over something equivalent to takeaway. But when mm. it's something that really matters, you know, you do need to speak up. And that's how we stop another robo-debt tragedy or space launch explosion by speaking mm. up when it matters. Yeah. So, Ken, what's your key takeaway from today's episode? Yeah, we've talked a lot about takeaways, haven't we? Indian, <laughs> Thai. Um, <laughs> here's my – that's my dad joke for today. Um, yeah, so, look, I think for me, I really love the idea of the pre-mortem. That idea of sitting around and really stress testing a plan, trying to find its flaws and then deciding whether to proceed as you had planned or whether you would implement some additional risk uh, mitigation strategies. I think this is a really courageous approach and it offers a great way to make some really robust choices. And what was your key takeaway, listener? Remember, teach a friend, it will help it stick. And if you're enjoying this season, I, we hope you are, make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And make sure you listen to our next episode, which will be exploring the trait of being adaptable. Yes. And don't be selfish. As Tess said, share your knowledge. If you're learning good things, share them with your friends. Bye for now. 